Mike sponsored it, but when I got the real, I'd be walking to an AA meeting, and that would be raining. And I'd soak to the skin, and he would come by, and that big guy, in the early 80s, all sober alcoholics had to get Cadillacs. That's, uh, they could be 25 years old, you know, but if you were sober, yeah, they have a Cadillac, you know. That, uh, that's how they knew if you were making it. Uh, I tell my babies when they get rid of the radar detectors are on their way to sobriety. You can always tell. So he'd come by in that big cow racket. He'd honk his horn and wave at me. Because he, he wouldn't take anybody to a meeting. And I'd get into the meeting and I'd be drenched and he'd hand me a cup of coffee. It's a Paul. I can't take take you to a meeting, but you know where they're at. I'll take you home. And they really did take me long, you know. But he's one of them retarded sponsors, you know. He only had about three sentences he could ever say. Uh, so now, shut up, dummy. It's in the book, dummy. Grab a pencil on paper, dummy. But that man saved my life. And I, I was about eight years sober before I answered to anybody that didn't call me dummy. You know, I thought that was my name. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I love alcoholics and I miss so much. But more important to me, alcoholics and I miss love me so much. I love everybody in this room tonight. Not for what you are. But for what I become when I'm with you. Uh, I forgot to mention what I learned from the Alnard speaker. See, I, I didn't know Alnard had 13 step calls. You know, I thought that was something to read. <laughs> so, that helped out a lot. I want to make uh, like I say, uh, said, I went to my first AA meeting in 1958. I got sober for real in 1981 in May. When I went to my first AA meeting, I'd already been kicked out of the United States Marine Corps. I was on my third skid row. And I just got arrested 22 times in 21 days. One day I missed it. 
for two days I got it twice. <laughs> so they took, uh, guess what, the beautiful things about the stash, you know. I don't know if the stash do anything for me or not. All I know for sure is Paul worked the stash and the Portland Police Department had a spiritual awakening. So, anyway, uh, they recommended me into adult court. They sent me to Manteno State Hospital. And uh, first thing that happened was the doctor gave me a shot of peralbohyde. And that's ether and alcohol. Now, God might have made something better in peralbohyde. But if God did make something better, he kept it for himself, I guarantee it. But when I took that little 10 cc's of peralbohyde, I become an almost, which was the reason I drank, like Johnny Harris says so eloquently. Paul was a nothing all his life. Today I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be alive, and I don't want to be dead no more, ever. But I was a nothing. I was a mistake. And when they told me I was an alcoholic, my first thought was, thank God. That means it's not my fault. That means I can drink as much as I want to, you know. And I could hurt anybody I wanted to hurt, do anything I wanted to do. And it wasn't Paul's fault. Because Paul was born an alcoholic. And then they sent me over to an AA meeting. And the first speaker got up there and says, if you want to stay sober, buy a big book. Buy a basic textbook of alcoholics and numbers. So during halftime, I bought one. And then we got the next speaker that got out there, and he says, take what you like, throw the rest out the window. But when guys that tell you that, they forget to tell you that you're going out the window with it, you know? <laughs> and at the end of the meeting, there's this old lady. She must have been at least 30. <laughs> and she come up to me and she said, young man. And I was 18 probably, uh, maybe 17. Uh, that time's kind of funny. You're so lucky that you got here in time. And time for what? Before you go through the things I went through. What did you do, lady? Well, I got so bad in my drinking that I burned 
my husband's birthday cake. And I knew I had to get help and quit drinking. Right then and there, I knew there were no alcoholics and alcoholics anonymous. And I spent the next 23 years proving it. My last big run, my last four years, I went to three AA meetings each and every day I was locked up in a booby hatch. I have five sobriety dates every day, but I made my three meetings. <laughs> the last year, I could no longer go an hour and a half for an AA meeting. So halfway through the meeting, three meetings a day, I'd go back and take my three fingers of whiskey so I could stay for the last half of that meeting. So meetings were not my answer. But I knew on my mind, somehow, some way, if I got the right sponsor, or if I got the right girl, or if I got the right count where the cops went pick on me, everything would be all right. And I'd quit drinking. But it kept getting worse and worse. I'm not going to go on a big uh, drunk rod, but I'll tell you a couple things. Our book tells us that having suffered from the same disease will not hold us together. What holds us together is we've a common solution, one that we can absolutely agree on and join. And uh, harmonious action. There's only one AA program. Some people say, I got no fashion program. There's only one AA program. Either you're doing AA or you're not doing AA. And uh, I want I mean, and I can't stand it. So I decided to kill myself in Orange County, somewhere in the early 60s. And I took some poison stuff and I injected it into my arm. And, uh, what what happened was they sent me to a hospital and they ended up charging me with a phone. Because back in them days, having a hypodermic needle was a phone. So they took me to court and wrapped me going into court with a 25-foot length of chain. They didn't have them 
Irons like they got today, but they had me wrapped in them chains. And the reason they did was the last time I was in that court, these flying gray apes were coming at me. And I was throwing the chairs to keep them gray apes away from me. Turned out it wasn't really a flying gray ape, it was a judge. <laughs> so this judge had the option of either accepting my plea or pleading not guilty. I was always pleading not guilty. Uh, only one time did I ever plead guilty, and that was in Long Beach. And I woke up on a cell, and I was on the floor, and there was the biggest you ever saw in your life and he was laughing and I said what am I charged with and he said murder one so I laid there until they got me up in front of the judge thinking I was arrested for murder one and they read out the charge and I was drunk and disorderly and I was so relieved and flabbergasted without thinking I just said guilty. <laughs> but that's the only time I ever pleaded not guilty. So he's, he, he said, take the kid over to the county jail. Told the Orange County Marshals, take me over to the county jail, uh, for lunch. And he would render his verdict whether to accept my plea or take it uh, to trial. And I plead not guilty due to insanity. So they marched me across the street, opened up the door of the county jail, Orange County Jail, and the deputy chef threw his hands up in the air says, I'm not going to take that kid as a prisoner in that jail. That was the first jail I ever got 86 there. <laughs> Later on, I got 86 out of the Orange uh, L.A. County Jail. And they took Charles Matson in that jail, and they went at me. You talk about resentments, how could they take Charlie and not take a nice guy like me? <laughs> but, but the reason they won't take me in that county jail was I couldn't stand Paul. And every time I took a drinky pool, I'd become almost... There were times if I could have got one more drink in me. Before I got arrested or passed out, I would have been a somebody. But I always felt one drunk short. And when that booze started to leave my system, and I started having to face who I was, a mistake or nothing, I would light the mattress on fire. And I'd stick my head down in that mattress. Because I knew that would get me to the hospital. And I shot a morphine. 
the morphine structure, he had almost as good as booze. Almost not quite. So that's why he won't take me. That was back around 1962 or 3. The judge accepted my not guilty due to insanity and uh, become institutional life. Over 45 state and federal looming bands. If he would have seen me for court, I would have still been institutionalized. But I would have been in the legal system. Like Norm Ralphie used to say, it's a matter of seconds and inches sometimes. And I'm sure grateful now that I spent my time in the hospitals rather than in the prisons. So I needed alcoholics anonymous at that time. Needed it desperately. But alcoholics anonymous is not for those that need it. And I don't know if you know much about the disease, but alcoholism is a progressive disease. And ten years later, my disease had progressed to a point that started to get a little bad. <laughs> and I wanted alcoholics, and I'm it's pretty desperate. And I was in Sawtell Veterans Hospital. And I got a lawyer to make the doctor let me go to AA meetings. That's how bad I wanted alcoholics anonymous. And the doctor said I could go to AA meetings. On condition I went in a straitjacket. Now, some of you have never been to an AA meeting in a straitjacket, and you feel it's an opportunity you don't want to miss. <laughs> so if you come up and see me after a meeting, I'll tell you a shortcut to accomplish it. <laughs> but see, your alcoholics are nervous. There's not for those that need it. Alcoholics Anonymous is not for those that want it. And I continued to drink. And I knew if I could just get one thing that was me. I'd be all right. So I finally found a woman sick enough to go out with me. And we got, I got 19 months sober. And I had a plan to have baby. Because I'd get baby and it'd be something that loved me. With no strings attached. 
So right after the baby was born, this relationship kind of went down the way. So I had to leave the house. And I was 19 months sober. And I decided to kill myself. So I took and was in a little shack I had rented. And I turned the gas on and I put towels and sheets in all the cracks. And then I got one of them brainstorms. Well, as long as you're going to die, you might as well go out with some booze. So I shut the gas off. I went down and bought two bottles. I don't remember now if they're fresh or quiet. But they had two big bottles, and I pretty much drank them all. And then I, uh, while I was drinking them, I had turned the gas back on. And the doctor told me the next day that I had drank so much beer so fast, I'd become comatose. And I wasn't breathing deep enough to breathe the gas in, and that saved my life. So who saved my life that day? And uh, they had me in the San Diego Veterans Hospital. All these guys from AA were coming. And you know that guy that you don't know I'm working right here. They got the big grins. They talk about the big grins, you know, in chapter three. God, I hated them grins when they got it. And everybody that carried their mercies to me always had that big grin. And so anyway, they told me the big book studied me. And, uh, At that meeting, there were two guys arguing about what the big book said. So I grabbed the textbook and I said, you're both wrong. And I, I showed them where they were both wrong. And I turned away from them. And I had the most god-awful feeling I ever had in my life. Because I knew what the big book said. And they'd done it, but they had a year sobriety, and I didn't. So Alcoholics Anonymous is not for those that need it. It's not for those that want it, and it's not for those that understand it. And I continued to drink. I met Chet Chamberlain. I still, I still, uh, trying to treat alcoholism as a sexual transmitted disease. I was getting all these women sponsors, you know, and I got drunk about five times in one week, and my sponsor says, I'm not going to sponsor you anymore if you don't go talk to Chuck Chamberlain. So... 
she took me over to Laguna Beach, and I got to hear Chuck Chamberlain talk. She took me, she grabbed me and pulled me up the way it was after the meeting. Right in front of him, she said, well, what did you think of him? And I looked up at Chuck and I said, you are so dumb, you don't realize how miserable you are. And during the first 23 years, I went out many times, and I'd come back, and I would be sober an hour, six hours, and I would tell them guys for 20, 25 years what was wrong with their program and how they could improve alcoholics anonymous. So alcoholics anonymous is not for those that need it. It's not for those that want it. It's not for those that understand it. And it's not for those that talk about it. Before I went to work at the uh, treatment center that I spent 14 years at, I had called out Gammy State Hospital. And I asked them if they would let me apply for a job out there. And they said, well, we're going to check your records and we'll call you back and let you know. So they called me back and they said, Paul, you can come out and file an application to go to work. But if you go back to drinking, you still will not be able to come as a patient. See? So they'd let me go work at damage, but they wouldn't take me back as a patient. <laughs> so there was nowhere else to go but AA meetings. And you talk about that squealing feelings, you know. You go to AA meetings with a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. It's a god-awful feeling. But I have no understanding of what alcoholism was. There was no doubt in my mind I was alcoholic. But I had no idea what alcoholism was. Uh, one of the things that showed I was alcoholic was you take a fifth person, he goes out and he drinks, and he wakes up in the morning, he's got such an awful hangover, and he's afraid he's going to die. The alcoholic and my type, I wake up with that same hangover, 
and I'm afraid to death I'm not going to die. Alcoholics are not afraid of death. Alcoholics of my type are afraid to live. Alcoholics are not much to not shake Paul's life. Alcoholics and Nambas gave Paul life for the very first time. An earth person goes into a new town and I was in the carnival business and circus business for years. And they'd go into a new town and they'd find a place to stay. And they'd go find a place to eat. Then they'd go find a place to drink, and then they would make friends. But I, I would come into Newtown, and I had Newtown every ten days to two weeks. First thing I did was I'd go to the mail bondsman, establish a line of credit, just in case. <laughs> and then I would go to the bar. So people told me that I was probably alcoholic. And if you see flying gray apes and pull that big eight legged spiders off your stomach, you know, and the blush washing, coming up in the room, coming up to here, you're probably alcoholic. But I still didn't know what an alcoholic was. There's two stories that demonstrate to me what an alcoholic is. And the first one, let me get a little gas here. This truck was walking down a four-lane highway. And he looked across the street and there was a sign in this saloon going out of business. All you can drink for, for a dollar. And he stops and he looks at that sign. And that can't be right. He looks again. And says, well, you can drink for a dollar. Well, I'm going to go check it out. I know, I know that's not true. And so he runs across the street, and the buses are piling into the trucks, and the cars are squeaking, and he goes through them four lanes, and he grabs that door and he pulls it so hard open it comes off the hinges. And he gets up to the counter and he says, Bark it, bark it. That's right. That's right, son. Oh, you can drink for a dollar. You don't really mean it. Oh, we do. Oh, you can drink for a dollar. You sure? Yeah. Oh, you can drink for a dollar. Give me two dollars worth. <laughs> now, when I'm drinking, that's the kind of drunk I am. 
see, now when I'm sober, before I pick up this book and follow directions, it's like the earth person. Earth people, when they go in a room, and they get hit over their head with a hammer, and the guy drags them out of the room. Next day, they don't go back in that room. But I go back in the room, I get hit over the head with a hammer, get dragged out. Next day, I go back in that room, I get hit over the head with a hammer, get dragged back out. Next day, I go back in that room, and the guy with a hammer right there. So I go looking for it. <laughs> uh, uh, back in the 80s, they had no simple tests for alcoholism, you know. But today we got that new simple test, you know. All you got to do is go, go out and buy a parrot. And if you spend all winter teaching that parrot to talk, then you're an alcoholic. If you spend all winter teaching that parrot to listen, then you're an alcoholic. <laughs> read the book, Roger. Read the book. Read the book, Roger. <laughs> so you can see I belong here. But there really is only one question you gotta ask yourself. Am I now? Or have I ever been in attendance? But then they ate me. And if the answer is yes, and you're not here for somebody else, then it's already too late. You might as well pick up the book right away and follow directions. Save yourself five, ten, twenty years of suffering. But you know, things get getting worse and I can no longer take it. Not one more time. So I decided I was going to kill myself. And this time, I can talk about this because I did not use heroin. And I was not a heroin addict. But I went out and I bought a hot load of heroin. And it was guaranteed the minute I put that in my vein, I would die. And I got it all ready to pump it in my vein and end this mess. Because I, I had told you people I don't believe in God. But I knew there was a God someplace picking on me because there's no way anybody could suffer the way I suffered if God wasn't picking on me. And he got all the women on the West Coast to help him and that really become one of them. And I just couldn't take it anymore. So I'm getting ready to put that needle 
in Des Moines, Iowa. And just before I did that thought crossed my mind, what if Clancy, Clarence Snyder, or Wild Bill Scully were right, and you died for no reason. And then I remember something that Clancy had said the year before. I mean, not a year, ten years before. It's kicking me out of an AA meeting in the Midnight Mission because I was drunk. You can go to AA meetings drunk, but you can't go to the mission drunks. So I got kicked out of it. And as he was kicking me out of that meeting, he said, if you're having trouble with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, go to the guy you hate the most, because he's got the most of what you need. And I knew who that guy was. <laughs> I used to go to the AA meetings and I'd check the parking lot for his car. And if his car was in that parking lot, I'd go across town to a different meeting. Uh, one of the greatest spiritual experiences of my life was when I found out they were checking the parking lot for my car. <laughs> So I went up to him and I said, Nick, will you help me? He had that big grin. And that big, big grin even got bigger. And he says, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> and he said, I'll help you. I'll help you on one condition. And you know what I was getting ready to tell him, don't you? But before I could say it to him, he stopped me cold. And he says, what I tell you to do is going to be right. Because it's going to come from the basic textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know it at the time. But Paul made his first surrender. And I said, okay. It was years before I knew that's what I did, but I had surrendered to the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's worked so well that I still do it today. And he told me if I read that book every day for at least 15 minutes, I would never drink again. And then the last 25 years, I read that book every day but one. And I had 40 books in my car. I had other kind of AA big book there is, you know. Big ones, little ones, first editions, all kinds. And I went to a doctor, and the doctor called an ambulance, and she wanted to let me go out the car and get my big book. So I ended up in the hospital without big book, you know. 
I got a new doctor too, by the way. But he says, we're going to take it word for word. We're going to take three weeks and do it. And we're not going to leave anything out of the first eight three pages. And we're not going to put nothing in. And the first eight three pages, for those of you that have read this textbook, know it's the first eight and a half steps. And I says, well, suppose it don't work. And he says, well, if it don't work, you still got that needle, you could go kill yourself. And then he took me to chapter 5, that the most important part of that part of the book, it says, if you want what we have, and are willing to go to any lengths to get it. He said, now, Paul, they're not talking about you, uh, people you meet in meetings. They're not talking about me. They're talking about the 40 people that wrote that book. And if you want what the 40 people had, then you got to do what the 40 people did. So he sent me to work reading the book, and I had to highlight every time there was a promise. And every promise in that book has got a condition. And I highlighted the promises in yellow and the condition in orange. I'd call them up. I said, kind of heavy promises. Not enough. Keep reading. Call them up. Got a hundred and fifty. Not enough. Keep reading. Call them up. Got 250. Not enough. Keep reading. Got 300. That's more than I got. Yeah, can quit now. <laughs> and he says, do you want them times? And I says, I sure do. And he says, then you got to do what they did. And he made, made me read the doctor's opinion, chapter 2 and chapter 3 up to page 35, ten times. And then he met with me and read it to me because he didn't trust me to read the black parts. And I found out some things. The most important thing I found out was drinking does not cause alcoholism. And as long as I thought drinking caused alcoholism, I didn't have a prayer that get you people that. Alcoholism causes drinking. And I had finally took them, step one, after all them years. And I come to find out in sobriety, 
that I was powerless over alcohol when I was sober. And that's why I went back to drinking. I found out in sobriety my life was unmanageable. Sober. Not when I was drinking, sober. Drinking was my solution. Until the side effects of the medicine become as bad as the original disease. And uh, step two was pretty easy for me because my sponsor says that there's not God someplace. You're in pretty big trouble. And I say, yeah. He said, you already proved what you can do. So if you're all there is, you might as well take that needle. And we read ten times the rest of chapter three where it talked about the alcohol thinking and how my mind was as abnormal as my body. And that tells me I had to believe that. And I did. And there's a question in there that says either God's going to be everything or he's going to be nothing. What is your answer to be? What's your choice? And there's the only place except when it comes to denominations and religions uh, that gives me a choice. And I told them everything, so we went on to step three. And at step three, after reading it ten times, he read it to me. I found I met the first requirement. And the first requirement is I got to be convinced that any life run on self could hardly be a success. And I knew if there was a God in any place, there's no way he could do any worse with my life than I had already did. And there's a possibility he might even do better. And my sponsor was one of them guys that says you don't have to believe in God to take steps free. There's only two things you got to know about God in order to take step three. He can't do no worse than you've been doing if there is a God. And the second thing is that God's name is not spelled B-A-U-L. And the big book says, first I have to quit playing God. And it tells me how, why. Because it didn't work. I tried so hard. I tried everything I heard in AA. I tried every, every cock and maybe a way of staying sober there was. From electric shock treatments to being put to sleep for a week so I wouldn't be angry when I woke up. And then everything was supposed to be alright. I tried everything but this. 
And that textbook says, though might be said, it was a biological step. It would have no permanent effect. Let's follow that once by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things that blocked me. All them things that made me do what I didn't want to do. All them things that kept me from doing what I did want to do. So we made five words. Resentments. And he put a column in there that says Paul's part. What should have Paul did instead? What's Paul going to do next time? The same thing with fears and with shacks and with shortcomings and with the people I hurt. And I went up on a hill and I told that guy my entire life story. And when we got done, he handed me that list of resentments. So put some of those resentments out. So in case you change it and keep them. So in case you change your mind and you want a little drinking pool, you can still go back and drink. And I'm pushing them resentments away. He says, well, if you want to drink. Oh. He did the same thing with the fear list and with the sex list. And I'm pushing them away. He says, Paul, I'm going to give you one more chance. Check out some of them character defects. That way, if you change your mind and you want to drink, you can do it. And I'm pushing them character defects away. You don't want any of them? No. I don't want to go back on that floor. You mean you're ready? Entirely ready for God to remove all these things? What are we asking at step seven for God to remove? Everything we found in the first five steps. Yeah. So, we got on our knees. And we asked God to remove some character defects. He did one of three things with each and every one of them. He eradicated lifetime habits that had never come back in over 25 years. Some of them, he says that things may come, and I'd have to go back if I did it and make amends for it. And the third thing he did was nothing. He said he took away the guilt. And for the first time in my life, I was not guilty. Coming down off that hill, he handed me a festival of quarters. He said, that's your hardest demand. Make it now. We stopped at the first phone booth, and I made it. And there was no longer a mistake. I 
I knew God didn't make a mistake when he made me. You become entirely ready only one time I know of. And that's in the half hour after taking that fifth step. And if you really want the benefits, you'll do step seven and eight. Six, seven, and eight right there in that half hour. Because the longer we wait, the less willing we are. And so... I've never had to go back and rework them steps. Because we did according to the book the first time. So the day I live in Alcoholics Anonymous, I got life that day. And we live on steps 10, 11, and 12. And I continue to watch for these things and ask God when they crop up. At night, I look at everybody I met through the day and see how I measure up to the four absolutes in my 12-step inventory. Absolute love, absolute purity, absolute non-selfishness, absolute honesty. And this is where I fall short. And when I ask God to correct these things, I get more of the goodies each and every day. I was told I'd never be able to work, never be able to go to school, never be able to be in a relationship. Well, over two years ago, my AA wife at 21 years died. A success. She was 23 years sober, and we had been married for 21 years. And she's waiting for me up in heaven now. I personally don't like these long distance relationships. <laughs> But in order to cope with that, I intensified my AA life. And I, I kind of became a dual purpose. On the one hand, I'm the wise old primer who's got all the answers. Uh, uh, doing that and on the other hand I'm going to more meetings reading a book half hour a day instead of 15 minutes a day talking to more people on the phone uh, praying more and it's just like being a brand newcomer I change groups there's three things you need in order to be sober. One is a sponsor. One is a sobriety date. And one's a home group. And yeah. And for your home group to work, you gotta have the best home group in the world. 
That's why we have over a million alcoholics tomorrow have the best home group that they do. It's all right for you to have a different one because yours is the best for you. So I love you today. And my program, I've done more in the last two years. When my wife first uh, died, God sent me 14 wet drunks in a three-month period. I always keep one or two wet drunks for half the 25 years. My sponsor said, when them times come, work with the wet ones to save your life. And when them times come, it's too late to go with it for a wet one. So you already have one or two hanging around, you know. <laughs> and I've done that. But when she died, I got 14 wet ones in the one, in, in one three-month period. God's been so good to me. And the people that are alcoholics and have put me in their bosom in the last almost two years in January. And they've taught me how to live without my wife. And I love you so much. And I see each and every guy in here. And some of you are pretty hard to look at, you know. <laughs> but I don't see you as you are. I see you as you can become. If you pick up this book and you work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the other two textbooks we got are AA Comes of Age that gives us 12 traditions. And then I only works in AA, but works in a group of people. And then the 12 constant men. So I got 36 principles to live by. And I don't want to be dead no more. And I don't want to be drunk no more. And it don't matter if it's a wet drunk or a dry drunk. They both hurt too much for me to pretend. So when all else fails, you pick up these three books and you too can have a brand new life. God bless you each and every one. But God already did that because you're in an alcoholics anonymous meeting. And if you're an alcoholic that's feeling sorry for yourself, remember things could be a lot worse. You could be in an alarm meeting. <laughs>